Well, this is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. It's good to be with you this morning. As I look around the room today, I see there's a number of new faces. I want to welcome you to Church of the City today. My name is Matt, and I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the City. Uh, There are two of us uh, that serve here as pastors. Pastor James is away on some much-needed uh, break and vacation. One of his sons, Liam, I saw the other day, if you're on Facebook with him, uh, cut his chin. So he was spending a little bit of time at the hospital, actually, on vacation. But I think all is well. If you are new to the church scene, uh, welcome. This is Church of the City. Uh, we generally say that the church is a group of people. That's actually what the Bible teaches. The church is a group of people. It's not a building. Uh, so what we say is, rather than welcome to church, I will say welcome church. It's good to have you here today. Now, if you're new to the whole Bible thing, what Christians believe about the Bible is that it's unlike any other book ever written. It's more than a book, we actually believe. We believe it is the written word of God. God in front of us. What that means is that we believe that the words of the Bible, while they are divinely inspired, are also written by human beings. And so humanity, uh, in relationship with God and by the power of his spirit, wrote the words of the scriptures, many times including much of their own, um, their own life experiences. So for example, when you're reading the Gospels, which are the first uh, four books of the New Testament, you're going to find a little bit more detail included in the Gospel of Luke, simply for the reason is that Luke was a doctor, and so he was quite intellectual, and so in his rendering of the text, you have more detail than you're going to find in other places. And so today, where we are is in the Old Testament, which is about the first two-thirds of the Bible is the Old Testament. And a lot of people avoid the Old Testament, and I'll just let you know, I love the Old Testament. I am an Old Testament lover. I mean, if you read the stories and the teaching of Jesus, Jesus is constantly referring back to the Old Testament. It's so important for us to study it. And over the summer, we've been studying the book of Esther, and we've subtitled this, this teaching series, When God Seems Absent. Because believe it or not, as you read the story of Esther, God appears nowhere. And there have been a number of people that have actually said, we should, we should, the book of Esther should not even be included in the Bible because God's not mentioned. But as we've studied the book of Esther, what we've come to realize is that for many of our lives, sometimes we feel like God is absent. Sometimes that's at, in situations where something devastating happens in our lives or we see devastating things happening all over the world. Sometimes it's just the mundane day-to-day life. Like today, when I, when I came in today, I was feeling just, my, my soul was heavy. Last night I had trouble sleeping. My, my soul is heavy. And we're singing the song, It Is Well With My Soul. And I'm going, God, I, I need you to make my soul well. Because it feels heavy right now. And so maybe you're in the same place today. And if you are in that same place, then you need to know that the story of Esther is applicable to your life and to mine. The story is about a king, and I have a picture of this king. His name was Xerxes the Great. There he is, as an artist has rendered him. Beautiful beard. And Xerxes the Great was the king of Persia, the reigning, the reigning rule at the time. This is the Persian Empire, as you can see now present-day northern Africa, leading into uh, the Middle East. This was Persia. The timing of this book, I have a bit of a timeline for us. We're just doing a bit of review If you follow down the bottom lines, we have 486 BC, Xerxes I, Ahasuerus becomes king. 480, Xerxes defeats the Greeks. 479, the Greeks defeat the Persians. 478, Esther becomes queen. And then 473, Purim is established. 
And so what, what we need to understand here, and the reason I'm showing you this, is that this story is not just some fictitious story that the Bible decides to include for us, but is an actual story that happened in the history books that you can go back and you can actually study the Persian Empire and you can study Xerxes the Great. Well, this story of Esther takes place in a particular city, and it's the capital, which is Susa. And here's a picture of an artist's rendering of the temple of Susa. And so this is where this takes place. And in this story, the king starts out with throwing two enormous parties, elaborate parties, to try to garner the attention and the loyalty of his province and of his uh, empire. We read in these stories that this king wants to invite his wife in so that his wife will parade herself in front of all of his officials. His wife says no. King's not happy about that. So he asks his officials, what should I do? And they say, well, get her out of here. Don't let her be queen anymore because what's going to happen is all of the women in the empire, they're going to start revolting against their husbands and in their households and then nobody will have power anymore. And so the king says, all right, bye-bye, Queen Vashti. Some time passes. We read a couple of years. King's been off to battle, comes back, has lost a few battles, is really regretting the decision he made about Vashti. And so he goes to his officials, because the king can't make his own decisions, and says, what should I do? And they say, well, king, why don't we have this enormous elaborate pageant in which we call all the virgins of the, the empire to come in. You have one night with each of them, and then you choose the one that you like the most. Welcome to the Bible, if this is your first time. And so we read that he does this. He says, what a great idea. And what narcissistic, egotistical king would not? And so this progresses. We're then introduced to two characters, Mordecai and Esther, two Jews living in the Persian Empire. They should have returned to Jerusalem when the exiles were asked to return, but instead they stay. They're living in Persian Empire, very much contributing and participating in the society. We can in many ways talk about and use the comparison of it's like you and I living in Canada and just participating in the life of our nation, not really standing for what we believe in. And this is what uh, Esther and Mordecai are caught up in. We then read that Esther is chosen (laughs) as she's the one that pleased the king the most. She's crowned queen. We then find out about a situation that happens in a particular gate. It's called the King's Gate. I have a picture of the King's Gate. You can go and you can find this place, but over there where those people are standing, that's where the gate is. And where the King's Gate is is where Mordecai worked. He's a lawyer, or he's also could be known as a judge, and he would judge people's situations. And he overhears in the King's Gate that someone wants to kill the king. And so rather than holding this information to himself, he now is an insider. He goes to Esther and says, Esther, this is going to happen. Someone's going to die. Uh, If someone wants to kill the king, uh, you should let the king know. king finds out about it. The people that are planning the thing, they get assassinated. They're killed. Lovely. Story continues. Mordecai is not rewarded. And as we'll find out later, that's actually a good thing. Story progresses. King is losing some more battles. Then we're introduced to a man named Haman the Agagite. Can everyone say Agagite? And Haman the Agagite is our protagonist. He's the bad guy. And Haman the Agagite has a particular beef with a guy named Mordecai because, well, you see, Haman, he's getting more and more popular and the king is giving him greater status. And there's a particular guy named Mordecai, yes, the Mordecai from the very beginning of the story, who will not bow to him. And so Haman, out of rage, runs off to the king and he says, we need to have the Jews killed. Not just one Jew. We need to have the entire Jews of of our entire empire annihilated. The king says, great, great idea. Once again, the king's not making his own decisions. This then throws Mordecai into a fit, into uh, sackcloth and ashes. He goes out and he says to Esther, Esther, you have to do something, because at this point Esther's remained silent about her identity. We read, as the story fast forward, she does decide to go to the king. As uh, different things unfold, 
Haman has ended up impaled. Really interesting turn of events. You can listen to some of our messages on these things. And today where we arrive in our story is Haman has been impaled. So the bad guy has been taken out, but there's still this lingering edict over the Persian Empire that in about 11 months, the Jewish people are going to be annihilated. They're going to be destroyed. Enormous genocide in this, in this empire. And so while the issue with Haman is solved, the issue for the Jews is not solved. But then as we read chapter 8, it's fascinating because chapter 8, as our author wants us to understand, the author in this book is, we don't know who the author is, but what our author wants us to understand is that this is a chapter of incredible reversals. Now you might be saying, a reversal, what do you mean? Well, everything is flipped on its back. Everything is flipped on its head from what we experienced earlier in the book. So our verses in chapter 8 start out with, Esther is given charge and ownership of Haman's entire estate. So Haman, he was guilty of treason against the royal couple. And so as we read in the past chapter, Haman is impaled. But what's interesting is that the king, because of what Haman has done, the king says, Esther, I'm going to give you everything that belonged to Haman. His home, his property, everything. Now what's interesting about this reversal is that at one point, Haman had complete control over Esther, her estate, and everything that was kind of revolving around her personhood. So here's this reversal the author wants us to see. He says, whoop! Now Esther's in control. The second reversal we see is that Mordecai is given Haman's position and his power. So at one point, Haman is the one that's saying, we've got to kill Mordecai. We have to kill and annihilate the Jews. He's raised in this, this position of power. And now in this chapter, we find out, nope, Haman's now been taken care of. And now we have... Mordecai, who's given him, given the position, and the king's signet ring. Incredible. And then the passage in this chapter continues, and we read that now Esther needs to go before the king and plead for her people. She's once again identifying with her people. Haman has been taken care of, but we still have this issue that in 11 months, my entire people and myself are going to be wiped out. We have to do something about it. And so she goes to the king and she says this, And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Now, one thing you really have to notice here is the twisting words that Esther uses. Notice what she does. She, she braids together her request going between abstract and personal. Look what she says. If it please the king. So she's leaning into the king's ish, w- wishes. If it please the king. And if I have found favor in your sight. Notice how she goes abstract to personal. Then she goes back. And if the thing seems right before the king. And I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written. You see what she's doing? She's braiding her desires into his desires in an effort and in a hope that he will actually give her what she wants. Now, it's very, very interesting and fascinating about this part of our passage and what's part of, part of this text is that we need to understand that in the story of Esther, 
Esther grew up in many ways just going along with how everybody else in the province was living and in the empire was living. She didn't stand up for being a Jew and holding to her Jewish customs. And over the last couple of chapters, we have seen Esther step up. But notice what has also happened as Esther steps up. God seems present. God is acting. And so what I need for us to understand and what we need to apply to your life and to my life is this. Is that sometimes God's absence can be rooted in our inaction. I'll meet with people, and people will share with me. They'll say, Matt, I'm not feeling God lately. And I'll say, okay. So then I ask the next question, because they pretty much think I'm going to solve it all for them. And I'll ask the question, well, talk to me about the rhythms of your life. Talk to me about your habits of Bible reading, your disciplines of spending time in community. Talk to me about the friendships that you have with people that are Christians. Talk to me about those things in your life. And they'll tell me, they're like, I I don't ever read the Bible. Uh, Really out of rhythm with people and accountability. I'm like, okay. So you're continuing to pin the absence of God on God when in reality you're not focusing on any actual disciplines in your life of his presence. You see, we blame God for his absence when we have created lives void of his presence. You see, what the spiritual disciplines in the scriptures are are given us and why they're given to us is because spiritual disciplines lead to a spirit-filled life. And what we continue to do is we're like, God, it's all your fault that I don't feel your presence. Now, what I'm not saying here is religiosity of go and do a bunch of stuff and then God will be super, super close to you. Or I'm not talking about earning your salvation. What I'm talking about is that when our lives have been changed, when our motivational structure for our entire lives is based on what Christ has done for us on the cross, when you say that you believe in something, belief is automatically seen when you actually do something about it. In James 2, verses 14 to 20, and then verses 24 and 26, it says this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. See what he's saying? It's not enough just to say, I believe in God. Let's go to the next verses. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. You see what he's saying? You cannot separate, well, here's my works over here, and here's my faith over here. I have faith in God. Because the automatic question that needs to follow that up is, okay, well, tell me about how that's playing itself out in your life. And so many people are sitting and saying, I don't feel God. He's absent. 
Meanwhile, they have no sort of spiritual disciplines going on in their life. The scriptures also talk about when we grieve or we quench the Holy Spirit. Hear this in Ephesians 4, 29 to 32. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasions, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, among, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Notice what Paul is telling the Ephesian believers. He's saying, if you don't want the Spirit of God to be quenched in your life or grieved, then you need to be looking at how much corrupting talk have I got going on in my life? Am I tearing people down? Because when you tear people down, you grieve the Spirit of God. And while the Spirit of God is with you, His presence might feel grieved or quenched. Then in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 22, it says, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. You see the connection? If your life is filled with evil, the Spirit is going to be quenched. So of course you're not going to feel God. I can tell you from personal experience, that when I am oftentimes struggling the most, when I'm giving into temptation, when I am not filling my life with, with Jesus-y stuff, I struggle to sense the Spirit of God in my life. And so what that looks like for me, I've got to delete apps off my phone. I've got to put boundaries around how much time I spend on my phone. Because if my number one go-to, if I'm standing doing nothing, is to look at Facebook... Or if my number one go-to is, well, I won't read my Bible in the hard copy and write out notes. Like, I got to look at the quality of my spiritual, my spiritual time with God, not just the quantity of it. You can read the Bible every single day, but if it's not quality time, it's not good time. So let's not just push it all off on God and say, God, well, you're absent. Let's look and examine our own lives, look at our character and say, where am I drawing lines between myself and God? Am I giving him room to breathe and to move and to do something in my heart. Let's go to the next section. Xerxes' response is this, verses 7 and 8. Behold, so Esther, it worked for. I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So what does he say? Esther, I'm not going to remove that, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you what I gave to Haman. You can write something that will hopefully in some way undermine what Haman wrote and what he put out as his edict. Now, there's a real fascination nowadays on television with lawyer shows. Uh, some of you maybe like lawyer shows. I have one particular lawyer show that I like more than other lawyer shows. And this lawyer show is Suits. And in the show Suits, we have a couple of main characters. We have Harvey Specter, who's a narcissistic, egotistical prick, really. Very, very wealthy lawyer in New York City. And then we have Mike Ross, who is his sidekick. Uh, you find out in the first episode that he's actually a fraud. He's not actually a lawyer. But Mike is brilliant because he has uh, photographic memory. And so what he's able to do is to look at anything that he reads, and he automatically remembers things. 
Now, what's fascinating about Suits, I'm a little bit upset with the most recent seasons because it becomes a soap opera and it's not about much about the lawyering. But when you look at what lawyers are required to do, is lawyers have to figure out a way for their clients how to get them out of things legally. Right? That's the purpose of a lawyer. They have to look at, okay, so this is the situation you find yourself in. We have to figure out a way to get you out of this in also a legal way because we are lawyers. Now, as we all understand in this broken, corrupt world that we live in, there are people that don't do this legally and there are people that are guilty that get off all the time. But in the show, you're led to believe that in many ways they are doing what needs to be done in a legal way to help their clients. And so oftentimes, as you're watching this show, you see that what you have to do as a lawyer is you actually just have to be one step ahead. The first edict stays the same, but we have to figure out a way to create a second edict that'll go up against the first one. All right? Everyone kind of understand that? That is what Mordecai and Esther are tasked with to do in the second edict. Because there is an edict that says all of the Jews are going to be annihilated on this day. So the question that we can then ask ourselves is, what would you do in that situation? How do you get that sort of thing off your back? What I'm going to do, and what I'm going to show for us on the screen, is we're going to do a compare and contrast. This is a hermeneutical thing. Hermeneutics is the study of the scriptures. Sorry for using these sorts of terms. But it's the study of the scriptures. We're going to look back and forth between the two edicts, and we're going to see the brilliance of what Mordecai and Esther have come up with as relates to their edict versus the edict that Haman at one point had written against them. So this is the first part of the edict. So the first part, the first edict can be found in 3, verse 12a, This is now found in 8 verse 9. So let's read the first one first. We read that then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples to every province in its own script and in every people in its own language. What about the edict that we find in chapter 8? The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and to the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and language. So let's first look at similarities. This message, this edict is going out to all the people that the first edict had already gone out to. So they're leveling the playing field. It's like we're not going to skip any provinces. We're going to make sure this goes out to everyone. One difference that you have to make note of is that there is the inclusion of the Jews in edict number two. It also went to the Jews in their script and their language. What is the second edict showing us? What they're doing is they are saying the Jews can be at the same level as everybody else in the empire. This is not just a letter for the, for the language of people that are part of the Persian Empire. This is an edict that is also for the Jews because Jews are people too. Isn't that awesome? That is justice coming out in these first few verses. Let's go to the next section. Verse 13, or chapter 3, verse 12b. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. What about in chapter 8? And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. What this means for us and what we're being told is that these edicts are not just from some superior official, but these, these edicts are from the very power of the king's hand. The king is the most powerful person. What he says goes. 
And so what we're seeing here is that both edicts are sent out by the power and the authority that the king has. Let's go to the next section. 3 verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Horrific. Chapter 8, verse 10b to 12. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service. We're given some breeding information, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and to defend themselves, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all of the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Now, as you can imagine, there are a number of people that are like, women and children? Goods? But what we have to understand as we read these two edicts is that Esther and Mordecai are simply covering their bases as it, as it relates to edict number one. You see, Haman mentioned goods, women, and children. If they don't have the opportunity to defend against, then they would not be allowed to do that. Now, we also have to understand that this part of this text also includes some historical significance. Uh, Nick talked a little bit about the history of the feud between the Amalekites and the Jewish people that goes back way to Exodus. As soon as the Israelites left, Ex- or left Egypt, the very first group of people that attacked them were the Amalekites. And we read back in 1 Samuel 15, verses 2 to 3, this is what the Lord says. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now next week, Nick is going to be speaking. He's talking about the moral issues that we find here. But for today, what you have to understand is that Mordecai is really, in many ways, leaning into the same language that has been understood by the Jewish people related to their opposition with the Amalekite people. So for him to avoid using language like this would also be to avoid the history that they understand between the feud between the Amalekites and the feud between the Israelites. So that's really, really important to understand. Let's continue on to the next uh, section. Edict 1. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. What are they doing? They're having everything repeated yet again, the same thing. This is posted in Susa, the citadel. The first one, same with the second one, posted in Susa, the citadel. Let's look at the response to these two edicts. This is fascinating. In the next section. Response to the edicts. Verse 13, verse, chapter 3, verse 15b. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. <laughs> First edict goes out. They get down to get wasted. But the city of Susa 
was thrown into confusion. Let's look what happens after the second edict. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. Let's have a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. You see the result? After the second edict, Mordecai goes out in royal garb. Previously, after the first edict, he went out in sackcloth and ashes. After the second edict, the residents of Susa celebrate when they see Mordecai, whereas they are thrown into confusion after the first one. And thirdly, the second edict is so influential, it encourages non-Jews to identify as Jews out of fear, which at one point kept Esther silent and in fear because she was a Jew. So after the the first one, Esther's like, I can't tell anybody that I'm a Jew. After the second one, everyone's like, I'm going to be a Jew now. (laughs) Do you see the influence of the second edict? Do you see the, 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 the incredible um, intellect and wisdom that they put into the second edict? Now, what do we do with this? How how do we make light of this? Well, the Christianity teaches that in this world, there has been a first edict given by the king. And the first edict is this, sin that leads to death. In the Christian perspective, our world presently lives under the curse and the first edict of sin And as a result, death. Sin entered the world through Adam and Eve when they aligned themselves against God. And because of their separation, he pronounced his irrevocable decree of death against them and all their descendants, which also means you and me as well. And you and I know this. You and I know that in this world, everybody will eventually die. As I heard one person talk about it, it's like a laptop without a power cord. It's going to die. And all of us are going to die. And we make decisions in our day-to-day lives that are terrible for ourselves and also can be terrible towards other people. Now, you might not have a Christian worldview. And, and the question that the, the Christian and the theist asks of the skeptic or, or the atheist is, what do you believe is the reason that people make terrible decisions and terrible choices? Is it purely a decision of survival of the fittest? Well, I'm stronger than you, so I'm going to crush you. Or is there something within each and every single one of us? Christianity says that thing that is within each of us is sin. And what that sin has done is it's created a separation between ourselves and the Creator. And different theist worldviews has different perspectives on how how that union is to be brought back together. And the Christian perspective is this, different than all other world religions. World religions tell you that there are, if you do a number of good things, you can defeat this first edict. That if you perform really well, if you show up on Sundays all the time, if you get in the right Bible study, if you fly a plane into a building killing the infidel, that you will be fine and you will go off to heaven. Christianity is incredibly pessimistic because it says, you're good, 
will never outweigh your bad. Your good will never outweigh your bad. If you were to start today and write a list of all of the things in your life, of the good list and the naughty list, your naughty list, I'm sorry to say, it will probably always outweigh your, ba- outweigh your good list. So you really have no shot. And so the Christian perspective says, yeah, you have no shot. But that's because, but the good news is that we have a counter edict. This is from Karen Jobes. She says this, Just as Xerxes, king of Persia, could not simply rescind the first decree of death, God, the king of the universe, cannot simply rescind the decree of death pronounced in the Garden of Eden against humanity. Instead, he issues a counter-decree of life, the gospel of Jesus Christ, because God did not simply rescind the curse of death on humanity. His counter-decree of redemption necessarily resulted in the incarnation of his son and in that son's death on the cross. So the counter-decree is this, that there is restoration and redemption through Jesus Christ. Let's look at what Romans 6, verse 23 says. For the wages of sin is death. That's the first decree. Counter-decree. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ephesians 2, 1 to 2, and then 4 to 9. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. First decree, the good news. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, not because of anything we have done, people, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of your works, so that no one can boast. First decree, second decree. Let's do another one. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 18. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. First decree. For now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once were regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. First decree. Behold, the new has come. Counter decree. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled himself to us. You know why we don't have to live under the curse of death anymore? Because Jesus Christ died for us. See what God does? He doesn't rewrite it, remove it. He says, no, I've got something better. I'm going to show you my love for you in coming to earth and dying on your behalf. He flips the whole system on its head. Good news is this too, is that both edicts, the curse of death and the gift of life, come from the power of the king's hand. So as we see in the edicts where it's like these all went out by the king Herasuerus in the power of his hand. 
The one that has the power, that, that has the power over death, but then also has the power over life, says, I'm not going to allow the death to hold you. No, I'm going to give you life. And life eternal with me. This is how Christianity is completely different than every other worldview because it's extremely pessimistic about our reality, but extremely optimistic about what God has given us in Christ. And the way this plays out in community, and we have to understand this because I see so much hierarchy that people have when they become Christians. We're like, I'm better than everybody else because I have a lot of good behavior. That's religion. Because the gospel says no. You can remain pessimistic about yourself, but optimistic about yourself, not because of yourself, but because of Jesus. By grace, you have been saved. But what this does is it also helps us as Christians be realistic about the world around us because the pantheists, the Buddhists and Hindus, they just want to tell you that while all of that evil that's in the world, that's just, that's actually not legitimate. That's just separate. So separate the bad in the world from you and you'll maybe receive some sort of enlightenment if you do all of these good things. Christianity says, no, we were created as physical beings. We have a physical reality. We cannot separate ourselves from that. We can enter into that with the hope of Jesus Christ. And so the good news is this from Brian Gregory, Inconspicuous Providence. Deep down in those places of death and hopelessness and despair, deep down there, there, God is at work plunging his providential hands into the ashes of our mortality and into the soul of our despairing world and crafting the newness of resurrection so that one day we will be able to stand together in a new world with new bodies and having experienced his deliverance and redemption, we'll say to one another, on this day, the enemies of death and evil and tragedy had hoped to overpower us, but now the tables are turned and we have the upper hand. For our God has given us life in the place of death, goodness in the place of evil, and beauty in the place of tragedy. We do not run from the brokenness of our world. We go headstrong into it because we don't go alone. God has gone ahead of us. He's gone before us. And he can recreate. You know, I'm sure the disciples and those followers of Jesus on his death, standing by the cross, were pretty taken of what had just happened. It's over! It's over. We're done for. Our leader's been taken out. We might as well just revert back to what we were doing before. Three days later, look at my hands, look at my side. Let's go change the world. And each and every single person sitting here today is a result of those disciples taking that call seriously. If resurrection is all a false, if resurrection is just made up, then how has the message of Jesus continued to change people's lives through the centuries? There's a passage in Acts, and one of the scholars says, he says, if this is of God, it will not fail. If this is of man, it will fail. Friends, this is of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ will never fail. And while his absence at times in our world based on devastation might seem like it's lacking, it's there. 
and you might be struggling with motivation to have spiritually disciplined lives, he's with you. He's gone before you. He wants you to be honest about the temptations. He wants you to be honest about the fact that you're struggling because he was pessimistic about your reality, and that's why he came. We don't live with the reality. You can save yourself. No, he saves us. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to celebrate that with communion. Communion is a celebration. Communion is saying, I believe what Jesus Christ has done for me. I believe that I can't save myself. I I believe the reality of the world. But Christ has overcome it. He's given me strength. Now, if you this morning need somebody to pray for you, if you're like, I need to know more about this Jesus character, then please come up because we have people that are going to be here at the front that want to pray for you. So maybe take communion or don't take it. Go talk with people first. Come back and take communion. But may we not miss what God is doing in our midst and the message of Jesus today. And so what we're going to do is communion is just going to be passed out as you sit in your rows. If you're not a follower of Jesus, don't take communion because you don't fully understand what this is about. If you are a follower of Jesus, take communion and celebrate what he has done Confess your sins to him. Confess your sins maybe to somebody that's sitting next to you. And if they look at you and they judge you, they don't get the gospel. Let's take communion and let's celebrate. And as we listen to these last few songs, the first song we're going to sing is the scandal of grace. You died in my place so that my soul will live. First decree, counter decree, we're alive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your grace. I thank you, God, that the edict of death because of sin does not have the final word and that you, Jesus, do. Pray that we would recognize this this morning. God, may we not leave here today without examining what Christianity teaches. And may we not stand here or sit amongst each other today, God, feeling like we're better than other people because then we're diminishing the grace with which you saved us. I thank you that as Ephesians tells us, but God, being rich in mercy. I thank you, Lord, that each person here that has accepted your gracious gift, that they believed in that but God. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that hasn't, that they would put their faith, hope, and trust in your mercy and grace. God, I'm excited about what you're up to in this church. I'm excited about the mission and the message of the gospel. May we never forget it. May it challenge those and justify us that have never believed it, but God, may it also continue to sanctify those of us who struggle to believe it day in and day out. We love you. Amen. Grace.